Well, hello. Uh, it's Thursday, the 3rd of December. Uh, my name's David Brook. I'm the hub leader in the Chapelfields Hub in the east side of Wigan. And wherever you are today, the Lord be with you. We're continuing our reflections in this first week of Advent around the theme of hope. And today uh, we look at a passage from Lamentations, the book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah. Lamentations 3, verses 14 to 33, in their verses in which uh, Jeremiah expresses deep distress, which seems to be the opposite of hope. And yet there is a lesson we can learn from Jeremiah about how to handle these times of distress. So I'm going to read first from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 14 to 33, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Jeremiah writes this. I have become the laughingstock of all my people, the object of their taunt songs all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has glutted me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continuously thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it to put one's mouth to the dust, there may yet be hope, to give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Once upon a time, long, long ago, when I was a young man, out to make a good impression on the girl who became my wife, I had a little disaster. It all started with a mix-up, perhaps a lapse of concentration. I picked up a gold spot breath freshener spray in one hand and a bottle of Eau Sauvage aftershave in the other and promptly sprayed the aftershave in my mouth. You saw that coming, didn't you? Pity I didn't. Friends, don't try this at home. It happened very nearly 40 years ago, and if I think about it, I can still taste the bitterness now. There's no undoing it, no covering it up, and no getting rid of the taste. At least I didn't spray gold spot all over my chin, small mercies. The point is, I can relate to Jeremiah's description of himself as being filled with bitterness and glutted with wormwood, with my teeth grinding on gravel. It's a description of a physical experience, 
being utterly unable to mask or get rid of a taste, but he uses it to describe a mental or spiritual state that I can also relate to as someone prone to episodes of depression. Wormwood in the mouth as a vivid, relatable image for what it means to say, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say, gone is my glory and all that I'd hoped for from the Lord. My soul continually thinks of it and is bound down within me. Anyone who's had that experience of seeing no way out will immediately relate to it. The bitter thoughts are like an earworm. They're like a physical weight. It feels like there is nothing that you or anyone else can do to change things. When someone well-meaning says, pull yourself together, you want to hit them. And yet, pull yourself together is often exactly what you do. The bitter taste, the thoughts circling like vultures, they don't go away. But you paste on a face and carry on, hollow inside, and only you know the truth. You're still broken inside. Your soul is bowed down inside you. Pulling yourself together is a close relative to the stiff upper lip, and possibly a peculiarly British idea. Not surprising then that it's also a close relative to a 5th century heresy, Pelagianism, which takes its name from an early British ascetic and theologian, Pelagius. Pelagius was convinced that it was possible to live a sinless life through the exercise of free will. Not only that, he thought that every true Christian both could and should, and he didn't have much time for people who didn't try. In other words, he pulled, believed in pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, pulling ourselves together. But if we could do that, what place would there be for the grace of God? That was the criticism levelled at Pelagius by Augustine. Three cheers for Augustine. But does that mean there's nothing we can do when those thoughts like Wormwood take over? Not according to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 3 is a remarkable passage. One moment, Jeremiah is filled with self-pity, writing about chewing on gravel, and the next minute he's celebrating the steadfast love of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord to those who wait for him, God's sheer abundance of love and care, not a God who blesses from time to time, but a God who is present in every high and low. But it isn't a simplistic passage. Jeremiah hasn't simply pulled himself together. He isn't sorted. The hard stuff hasn't gone. He's writing about what he does when he is stuck in the pit. The passage turns on the words, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Like an optician during an eye test, he chooses another lens to look through, and what was murky and out of focus suddenly snaps into focus and becomes clear to him. When he writes, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end, they are new every morning, he is still in the pit of despair. When he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him, he has a long way still to go. But he has reminded himself that God may be silent, still and unseen, but he is never absent, unfeeling or uncaring. Even when the immediate outer reality for Jeremiah is ridicule, insult and physical abuse, there is a deeper reality, both inner and outer, that enables him to wait quietly, sit alone in silence, and even to allow more abuse to be heaped upon him. 
That reality is that the Lord is his portion, a generous, overflowing portion, not a meagre portion, and so there may yet be hope. For some people, it's important to keep a journal so they don't forget. For others, they need to surround themselves with images that speak of God's goodness. For yet others, it's important to write down or stick up key verses that describe their experience of God in good times. Whatever works for you is fine, but we all need to have something about which we're able to say that this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Hope doesn't instantly fix things, but it can shift our focus. Hope is possible in times of despair. Hope reminds us that we can't just pull ourselves together. It isn't in our power. Instead, hope is the key that unlocks, unlocks the grace of God. Hope tells a different story, not just about the future, but about the past and about the present. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15, the Apostle bids us always be ready to make your defence to anyone who demands from you an account of the hope that is in you. Peter's talking about always being ready to give our testimony to someone else. But when times are tough, I want to suggest that we need to have a testimony ready for ourselves. So what will you call to mind if you find yourself in that place where your soul is bowed down and your mind going round in circles? If we follow Jeremiah's example, it won't be about our experience of God, but about who he is eternally and at the very core of his being. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. We have a special prayer that's been chosen for us for today. And after that, we'll pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us. We pray it in solidarity with Christians across Wigan, across the Diocese of Liverpool and across the world. And of course, we use whatever words are most familiar to us. Don't feel obliged to use the version that I use this morning. So let's pray. Here we have a prayer from the Venerable Bede, written uh, sometime in the 7th century or eighth century, early 8th century. O Christ, our morning star, splendour of light eternal, shining with the glory of the rainbow, come and waken us from the greyness of our apathy and renew us, renew in us your gift of hope. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and for ever. Amen. Whatever lies ahead for you today, may the Lord go with you.